people from those top tier schools and so on were not as good. Even actually the uh, people we hired from Stanford, uh, uh, you know, I would say we didn't hire that many of them because they tend to be more expensive and have higher expectations uh, at the beginning of life. But I would say the Stanford students did not perform as well. Hey, it's Brandon Na, and you're listening to Educate, a podcast focusing on education, but with a twist. Instead of asking just educators how our schools might need to change or how teaching could be revamped, I asked some of our true quote-unquote disruptors of today and asked them what their thoughts are with regards to educating the future. We hope you enjoy today's episode of Educate. Good evening, good morning, or good afternoon, wherever you're listening to today's podcast. Thank you for joining Educate. We uh, are lucky today here to have my friend and honorable, I should say honorable, but you know, he, he just has a name, <laughs> Honor, so you know, it's just by default, Honor. Uh, you know, I've never even, uh, you know, asked you about your pronunciation for your last name. Is it Gunde or Gun- Gunde? Um, good. Um, it's actually Gandhi in English, but it's Gundai in Turkish. Interesting. So, honor Gundai, is that correct? Yeah, it doesn't matter. Okay. I have an umlaut on my U, but I removed it. It's like Hagindas, a bunch of umlauts. So, I just removed it. <laughs> I see. <laughs> so, Honor and I have known each other for many years, uh, but, uh, you know, a, a good number of years uh, ago, he, he started a startup, uh, wh- which is now a very mature company uh, by the name of Payment Wall. And uh, um, I thought maybe it'd be kind of nice. Do you mind introducing to our listeners, uh, you know, today, like, what is Payment Wall and, and what do you guys do? Yeah, sure. Uh, so Payment Wall is a payments platform. Um it's a payments technology company. They call them fintech companies nowadays. Mm. Uh, but when we first started, you know, we didn't know what fintech was. Uh, so we started as a um, payments company that helped uh, games on Facebook uh, monetize. So we helped the game companies make money in different markets. And then we expanded from there to new verticals. Uh, and today, uh, you know, we're called the fintech company, a PSP, payment service provider, uh, and so on. And we have built different products that, you know, do different things. Uh, payments are quite invisible in the background. People don't pay attention to it, but uh, we're different from banks and we uh, help uh, people pay. Interesting. So I know that your space has gotten very, you know, attractive or, or there's a lot of excitement around it from what, what I hear. Like, for example, Stripe or, or Square support in the media. Would you say that you're in that kind of space or sphere? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, Stripe is a competitor on the credit card processing side. Uh, Square is not really a competitor because we don't have a similar product to theirs, which is um, in the POS space. We don't have any product, so I wouldn't say I wouldn't say Square is a competitor, but they have made some inways uh, into uh, uh, online payments as well. They have a uh, e-commerce uh, uh, platform and they provide some online payments to brick and mortar shops. Uh, their target audience is a little bit different, but I would say you know we're pretty much in the same space. I would say PayPal is very similar to us, but they're a much bigger company, much older company. Mm. Uh, there's a company called Adyen. It's a Dutch company. That one is also in the same space, but they appeal to more bigger companies. I so we, we play in like the middle ground uh, and so on. Not too big, not too small. 
middle-sized companies. Got it. Got it. So, so now how, how long have you guys been in business? Uh, so I'm, you're no longer a startup now, right? Mm, I can't really say you were a startup anymore. We're 10 years old uh, and uh, we started in San Francisco, uh, but we also in Kiev, Ukraine, and uh, we expanded to many, many different places. We have team members basically supporting our company from different countries. I see. Okay. So in how many countries uh, total now? Uh, my team counts it as 14 because we have two offices in some countries, in China, India, and so on. We have two offices each. Uh, I think it's 14. Okay, great. Well, there, there might be some listeners out there who are curious, uh, maybe from a, a startup standpoint. So I'm going to ask you, if you don't mind, a couple of questions um, sure. in that you know uh, realm, I guess. Um, did you go the regular route of startups? Um, like, did you, do a, did you build an MVP? Did you pitch your idea? Did you bootstrap? What, what did you do? <laughs> no, no MVP. So I would say uh, we're quite um, not the typical startup because uh, we have no VC funding. It's a bootstrap company. Uh, we have been, uh, we have never received any outside funding and most companies nowadays, uh, to be able to get the, uh, VC funding, they actually build the MVP, uh, and then they do some, you know, market analysis, they fail, they succeed, they fail again, and then they learn from those failures. And then they <laughs> say, you know, we learned from our failures and they ask for more VC funding. Right. In our case, we don't do, we didn't do that. Um, we, um, we started as an advertising company and the advertising company didn't work out. Uh, and I had already experienced building startups and technology products as a product manager. And as you know, you and I, we worked at Expedia. That's how we met. Right. Uh, so, you know, I used the experience that I had building products uh, as a PM, uh, you know, in my own company and in helping other startups and so on. And then I decided to just focus on my own company. Mm. And that's what, uh, that's what, you know, payment all is. So, yeah, we didn't really follow the MVP route, but our first product was, of course, an MVP. We launched it and it failed. Uh, and, um, you know, after that, we realized that people didn't need advertising. They needed payments. Uh, so we launched on the payment side and that worked out. Nice. Nice. So you, you were able to succeed after, you know, like maybe one or two pivots, right? Uh, I would say one pivot, but then I would say uh, I think pivot is really important, actually. We pivot every three months at Payment All. Mm. So we call it a pivot. <laughs> sure. And then we call it something. And we call it like the last pivot was COVID-19. Okay. Yeah, because it's really a pivot. Uh, and I think any company that didn't pivot is either dead or is going to die or is going to have problems financially. Mm. Interesting. That that's uh, Actually, I kind of like that. I mean, frankly, there's, there's arguments out there that you're always needing to, uh, you know, test the product market fit, right? Yeah, yeah. I think the market changes so fast nowadays. Uh, I think if companies don't pivot on a regular basis and re-strategize every three to four months, uh, every three months, if it's a quarterly and if it's every four months, it's like, you know, once, once a year, uh, three, to one, three times a year, uh, then they fail. Uh, if you look at the fashion industry, it's pretty much similar. You know, they come up with uh, new clothing lines and, you know, new colors and so on to be able to keep up to date. Right. Right. That makes sense. That makes a total amount of sense. Uh, now, now, you know, it's funny, um, Honor, even though we know each other quite well, um, I, I don't know about your co-founder. So I looked him up on Wikipedia. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it said his name, uh, I think, was uh, Vladimir. And I'm going to butcher this. Uh, Kovalyov. Could you pronounce that? Sorry. It, it's Kovalyov okay. uh, in, Kovalyov. in Russian or Kovalov in uh, Ukrainian. Got it. Got it. And, and it said that he was a retired 
figure skater? Did you did you start a company with? <laughs> no, 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 no. I didn't start the company with a retired uh, figure skater. Okay. Uh, my co-founder is uh, thirty six or thirty seven years old now, uh, and uh, we started when he was twenty three or twenty one. Yeah, he was twenty one. I was twenty four. Something like that. And uh, we basically uh, worked together. Um, uh, what I did was I actually posted uh, a mark. A job ad on uh, on a marketplace for uh, freelancers, and uh, I had a bunch of people bid on it uh, from different places, from India, Pakistan, Europe, uh, Ukraine, Russia, and so on. And then I picked him uh, out of there, so he joined, uh, you know, my company as a freelancer originally. But he proved to be excellent, and I visited him uh, in Ukraine uh, when I was visiting my mom in Istanbul, and I decided to actually. Uh, quit uh, Expedia and start uh, this business where I would be building a marketplace. Right. So that's the story. Interesting. So, so you went and visited this guy in Ukraine. Uh, yes. And and you know, obviously, you you, you spoke with him and, and spent some time. Um, yes. You know, and, and he became a co-founder. So, so how? I mean. You know, I, I'm kind of curious because, you know, the co-founder thing is a big deal in the startup world, it appears. Um, like, how, how did you come to trust him? I mean, you know, it, it, you know, you said that he, he applied via a freelancing ad and then, you know, eventually you got to know him. But wouldn't it take time to, 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 to you know, become that close with him? Yes, you're right. So um, <laughs> good question. So let me see. Uh, I actually like to tell the story to people and nobody really listens to it. So <laughs> I'm happy yeah, you're good. asking this question. So, uh, so, so, and I thought about this also a lot. Um, I think I'm a really trusting person. I actually trust people a lot as long as I don't know them. But if I know them well, and if I have already judged the people, the person, uh, I become less trusting. So I only allow people to fail so many times on me. And after that, I just erase them, delete them. I don't work with them and so on. But this guy proved to be extremely reliable. And I think uh, uh, we were meant to work together somehow, something like that. So uh, originally, when we first started um, working together, I posted the job ad and then he responded and then he uh, created a demo and I paid him $100. And uh, he gave me the code base and then I released the money from escrow to him. So it was actually in escrow. Mm. I, before I received the, the, the code base, I did not give him the money. Then the second time, I did the same. The third time, I did the same. Uh, he got so used to doing it this way, uh, he always basically made sure he delivered uh, the code base to me. And then he got his money. And I always made sure that he gets his money on time. So this was a relationship of um, you know mutual interest, I would say, initially. Sure. And then after that, it changed a little bit. Uh, now I started trusting him more because he had proved himself to be very reliable. So I basically increased the level of trust and increased the um, amounts of money I owed him. And he also increased the level of code that he you know, built for me. Not small features, but he built like a whole section of the product or something like that. I see. Interesting. So then over time, you know, that trust builds up. And then I said, hey, let me visit this guy and see where he lives and what kind, what kind of country he lives in. Let's see what the Ukraine looks like. So uh, Turkish guys used to actually uh, travel to Ukraine um, to, uh, you know, date women and so on uh, over there because Ukrainian women are known to be very beautiful mm. uh, and Turkish guys are extremely horny. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so boundaries are not, uh, you know, a blocker. So they basically travel there. And so on. I said, okay, these guys, if they are able to travel, it must not be that expensive. 
let me figure out the flights. And I, you know, was visiting my mom in Istanbul. Um, and then I decided to visit uh, Kiev and I met him. And uh, he also appeared to be very polite um, and uh, very caring and so on uh, in difficult situations. He he's really tall, by the way, almost two meters tall. Wow. Uh, so so I'm not that tall. I'm 5'9", five, 5'10", five, something like that. So uh, he's <laughs> he, he was like trying to protect me and help me out. And uh, he was also very kind. And I, I think that created the trust factor between us. Nice. And so you, you felt him out and then eventually decided, like, that, that's the guy. This is the guy. Yeah. Yeah. People get scared of him because he's really tall and big. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. His, his nickname is Vovito. Vova, Vovito. Like, small Vova. But that is <laughs> really huge. You know, it's kind of funny. That's wonderful. Well, I look forward uh, to the chance of meeting this uh, nice gentleman, uh, Vovito. Uh, he, he's great. And uh, we've been working together since 2004. Wow. Wow, that's a long that's time. That's 16 years. That's yes. that's a really long time. Very long time. Very long time. Well, uh, so lastly, uh, you know, before we actually uh, pivot to some questions about education, uh, that's sure. wonderful uh, uh, background. Actually, I'd love to talk to you more about Payment Wall, to be honest. But, but you know, our, our podcast is, you know, a bit about education because I think we need to, to ask some, you know, questions uh, for what may, you know, help uh, the future. And so, but before sure. we turn uh, to some of those questions, you know, the reason why I asked you to the show was because, you know, obviously I, I copied you in on an email to this uh, Turkish kid, this young kid that asked uh, about um, Phillips Andover, or sorry, Phillips Exeter. It was one of the yes. first. And, yes. And, and you had some really interesting thoughts, um, yes. you know, that, that you know, you, you had shared. Uh, but before we get into that, um, I, I, this is my last question on the startup uh, arena. Can I can I sure. ask what would you do if you had yes. to do this all over again? Is there anything that you would you know uh, you know just for all the people who are listening you know from the startup angle? I would argue. Um, yes. Is there any tips you would have in, in starting a, a company like you did? Mm -hmm. I I think I wouldn't do it any differently uh, from what I did. Uh, it's just a random coincidence you know it's not like you, you control your life and this is going to happen to you mm. um i think you take a, you have a desire to achieve something and you have that in your mind uh i i had the desire to build something on the internet that was my passion uh since i was 16 17 years old when i first found out about the internet uh and uh, i did the most out of what i could do um you know uh, in that space. Now, uh, I experimented with many different products I built online, many, many products, maybe 50, 60 different products. Uh, so it was really my passion, my hobby, everything. I spent uh, the whole day uh, from morning till you know night and until the early morning and so on studying about the internet and how it works, what you can do, how you can build products, how you can hack stuff, all kinds of stuff. So that's basically, you know, was the basis of this. And then uh, it became a product that basically um, uh, combines all the different experiences that I had in one. And then I think payments is the best one. I, I, I would not change payments for anything else. Uh, it's really become my passion and it's the passion of my team. And I tried to also instill that passion onto the newcomers um, when they join our company. I really, really enjoy payments because payments is the most essential thing that allows transactions to happen. If you don't have payments... Uh, you cannot have transactions happening online, then the internet doesn't mean anything because the whole financial system of the internet collapses, except for advertising. But I think advertising is something that's like a nuisance, you know? People don't really enjoy 
viewing the ads. They're just forced to view the ads or engage with the ads. Whereas with payments, people end up really making a payment because they enjoy something or want something. They desire something. And that's, I think, a better, a more positive thing to provide. That's great. That's great, Honor. Um, I mean, one of the things I love about you, and you know, I've known you for years, is, is how honest you are. So, I mean, some people give you the typical, you know, you got to do this, you got to do that. But uh, that's great to hear. Um, it sounds like, you know, your passion basically took over and um, it, it, it's worked out. All right. Well, let, let's talk about some of these education questions. So, like I had mentioned, sure. uh, you know, we were emailing this eighth grader uh who has this huge <laughs> desire to go to one of the top boarding schools. And, sure. and, and the funny thing is that you, you, you told them, you know, like, don't go. Right. <laughs> so yes. Can you, can you share a little bit with the audience? Like what, 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 what were you thinking when, when you, you told them to, to, to go away, you know, don't go there. Uh, okay. Well, uh, I mean, I looked at his email and I was trying to figure out, you know, um, the reason why he was emailing and how he was emailing and why he was emailing. So I'm really curious uh, usually uh, to understand the real incentive mm. for someone uh, doing something and taking an action. So I looked at the email. It, it He claimed to, to speak uh, three languages fluently. And then he expressed his uh, passion to you to uh, attend this uh uh, etc or whatever the school is i forgot the name uh but it's a it's a prominent school and the school is mentioned um over and over again uh, when you're in high school that this is the school for privileged kids so you know people uh, who are rich or people who are famous they send their kids to the school so i was just thinking about where he was coming from uh and you know he's tur- turkish uh, partially i think he Maybe it may have been born in Germany or something. I think he had disclosed that. So, um, okay, let's think about that. So he hears the story about how the rich and famous people go to these schools. And he comes from a Turkish background, which is not as privileged as, you know, some rich families in Europe. or So uh, overall, uh, Turkish people, I would say, start off uh, on an unequal footing uh, compared to the Europeans uh, because they're not part of the European Union and they don't have the advantages of being uh, in these developed countries. So... The Turkish people always have to prove themselves. So why is he wanting to go to these places? I guess he wants to prove himself and he wants to secure his future uh, based on the fact that he will have that credential under his belt. Mm-hmm. And uh, I thought about that and I, I, I thought about my own experience. I don't really think um, the school actually makes the man um, or the woman. <laughs> <laughs> it, it doesn't make uh, the person um, who, they're, who they're supposed to be. I think... The schools are um, a way for you to get to know how to communicate in a certain way. Um, and, you know, uh, maybe that Phillips Exeter Academy mm-hmm. uh, might give access uh, to someone uh, to uh, have a view of how people live or how people behave at higher uh, echelons of society or something like that. Mm-hmm. But does this guy really need to do that? And he doesn't have the money. He was mentioning that in the uh, e- email as well. So... His parents are divorced and his mom doesn't earn that much money. And he's very upfront about it. So he's aware of his situation and so on. Right. So why do you have to do that? Why do you have to go there? It doesn't really uh, mean anything, especially in high school. I don't think it matters. Um, my experience is uh, high schools in developing countries usually are better than high schools in developed countries, especially the United States uh, and the UK and so on. So if a person comes from Vietnam um, and or let's say Russia or Ukraine or China or India, 
from my experience, I think the high school students have more knowledge graduating from high school than someone, um, you know, that would graduate uh, from college in the United States, almost uh, with regards to math skills and uh, general world knowledge and so on. Yeah, well, tell us tell us a little bit about your, your education background, because uh, I do know, obviously, you went to one of the best universities in the United States. Uh, yes. But before you got there, what, what led, you know, or how'd you get into to Stanford? I also went to the best high school in Turkey. <laughs> oh, really? So tell yes, me about I, that. So I went to I went to um, Galatasaray High School. This is a really old school from 1481. Um, it used to educate um, uh, foreign dignitaries in the 1800s, 1900s. Um, uh, it created the Young Turk movement. Uh, people might have heard the terminology Young Turk, the rebels. Um, so it, it had quite a bit of influence on uh, Turkish society and history. Uh, and arts and music and all kinds of stuff like that. Uh, and, you know, it was founded for that very reason uh, to connect the European uh, cultures with uh, Turkish culture. Wow. Wow. Had no idea, Honor, but uh, uh, that, that makes a little sense. Um, now, mm -hmm. now, did you grow up in, in a privileged situation or did you get uh, did you work really hard to get into that program? I mean, tell us a little bit about, you know, uh, uh, maybe your path as far as, you know, going going to that school. Well, uh, to get into this school, uh, privilege does not uh, really help you because you have to score uh, the highest in a national exam. I think three million people uh, take this exam. It's called the Anatolian High School uh, Entrance Exam. And, uh, you know, you have to rank in the top 155 or 144, I forgot the number, to be able to, you know, get a spot at uh, Galatasaray. Wow. There's a few other schools also, but, you know, that one is one of the best. Wow. So, so it sounds like, you know, obviously you did really, really well in high school. So then, then going into Stanford, which is considered, you know, literally the hardest to get in. I mean, not considered, it literally is statistically. It right? was. It is, it is. Statistically, it is, yes. Yeah. More, more difficult than Harvard, I believe. Right. No, definitely more than Harvard. Um, the only, only schools that I would argue that, you know, we don't even have uh, uh, information out there. Um, or like uh, Tsinghua University or Peking University or, or maybe Seoul National University that doesn't have statistics out there um, as far mm -hmm. as acceptance rates, right? Uh, yeah. But, but uh, was, was it an easy transition? Uh, was, was Stanford uh, uh, challenging? Uh, just, you know, can you tell us a little bit about the experience there? The school itself was not challenging, I would say, um, but getting in was challenging because I, I, I actually never had studied in English. Uh, I studied uh, all my classes in uh, French and in Turkish. Uh, and then we had some classes that were like, you know, uh, classic Ottoman language uh, and uh, literature, uh, <laughs> Greek, uh, you know, Latin and things like that in as part of the French curriculum. Uh, so I had to do uh, all kinds of stuff in different languages, but then never in English. We only had one English class. Uh, so I made a goal for myself to study in the US because my dad lives in Miami and I was born in the US. So I have the rights to, of course, uh, study in the United States and I could you know I was eligible for some uh, loan programs and uh, federal grants and things like that so I want to take advantage of that and also getting into college in Turkey is very competitive uh, people study uh, for two years and they have to take uh, private lessons plus they have to go to some additional courses on the weekend and so on because one answer that you answer wrong on the national uh, university entrance exams uh, can basically rank you much lower than everybody else, and you may not be able to get into your, um, you know, target school. 
Wow. Wow. Very tough. Uh, now, uh, can I ask, because you, you, you have a lot of uh, staff or team members uh, from sure. across the world, right? Yes. You hire internationally quite a bit. And so yes. you, you definitely know the backgrounds of all your, your teammates and where they've of been course. educated. So, so you probably have some interesting thoughts as far as, you know, like what their education has possibly done. You know, as team members, I mean, you're, you're the head honcho and, you, you know, you, you, you get to see their, their performance. And, and yes. do, you, do you ever uh, assess based off of their education? Does it matter? I mean, you did say some really interesting things about, you know, the university doesn't make the person. Right. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, they could definitely do it on their own. But but do you have any thoughts overall about how education is today in different parts of, parts of the world? Yeah. Why, why don't we talk about, I mean, you had said a little bit about internationally, it's, it's strong, right? Yes. Yes. I mean, okay. So uh, if you ask my, you know, opinion, like which countries fare better um, in terms of performance in math and science and so on, I can tell you that communist countries are the best. Really? Interesting. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Even... I, I don't know about North Korea. I mean, you have a Korean background, <laughs> but uh, you know, uh, I think Koreans uh, uh, also are quite good. They're very competitive, but that's a different. Exp I have a different explanation for why Koreans are so good at what they do. Mm. Uh, but I have an explanation for why the communist countries do really well. Uh, one, I think they don't really believe um, in religion, so they don't get distracted too much uh, as countries, and then they focus really hard on uh, science and math and. Uh, you know, anything that's scientific. Mm. And how about the Koreans? So what's your theory behind that? It's a really interesting nation. Uh, I really love um, uh, understanding Korean culture. It's a very difficult culture to understand. Mm. Um, it's complicated. But uh, overall, I think uh, I think Koreans have a big desire to win. Mm. And that big desire to win uh, comes from, it's like, a, it's, it's a social pressure. Uh, it's a cultural pressure. It's a pressure on yourself. It's a pressure from your family onto you. Uh, it's a really interesting thing. But this comes actually from uh, their uh, relationships with uh, Japan and how Japan uh, basically, I don't know, denigrated against, I don't know if that's the right word, um, you know, Koreans. And Koreans basically said enough is enough and we're just going to not allow this to happen anymore. We're going to win and we're going to be a first tier country. And they have succeeded so well. Yeah, we, we could we could have a full podcast on just the Koreans. I I, I imagine. I agree. <laughs> I tell I tell our team in Vietnam that they should look at Korea. It's a success story for Asia. Uh, in a matter of 30, 40 years, they were able to change their country because of the hard work and dedication and um, this willingness to uh, change themselves. Yeah, they they. Uh, I mean, you know, obviously I'm biased, but um, on an objective level. Um, there's, yeah. there's a 2014 report that Harvard actually uh, accidentally released to the internet, and I got a hold of it, and yes. it, and it identified who was the highest uh, number of international students. You know, it, yes. it went from basically Canada to yeah. right into Koreans. So the Koreans were number two behind Canada, and, and Canada is made up of, you know, obviously Canadians that are Korean and, and Chinese, so who knows if Koreans were number one. And then yeah. I was surprised because China was below Korea. Yeah, interesting. But overall, maybe the Chinese people have U.S. citizenship. That's the other thing. It could have been. It could have been. But I was, right? I was just fascinated because China, you know, obviously is like 20, how many 
what is it? More populous. Yeah, like 27 times at least. And so um, it was just fascinating from that perspective. But, you know, this, is, this isn't about, uh, you know, bragging about whether or not Koreans are better. But anyway. No, no, no. And also you can see, uh, for example, I interview people from different backgrounds. They come into the interview all standards. You can't really tell a Korean from another one based on how they dress too much unless if they wear too many brand name things and so on and so that. <laughs> But overall, uh, it's really fascinating. I interview some people. They come very proper to the interview, really well-dressed. And then you ask them sometimes, you know, it's good to ask. So uh, you studied in, like, let's say Finland or you studied in uh, Germany. You studied in the U.S. and you speak German and English fluently. They usually speak English with an American accent, with no accent almost. It's really surprising. And then I asked them, how did this happen? Did your parents fund your education? I try to figure out. If they're spoiled or not, you know, based on <laughs> that question. Sure. And I hear uh, really, really, really sad stories. Like I heard, I heard from a lady that her mom was a single mom and she worked in a soup uh, shop uh, in the metro. Mm, wow. and, and that's how she was able to fund the education of the kids abroad and so on. And she was, you know, really hardworking and. Uh, really respectable in uh, all the ways that she communicated with us. Wow. Wow. Impressive. Um, now, so talking about internationally, we, we, we kind of, you know, found that, that they're, they're, you know, at least from your perspective, that they're they're quite competitive. How about the yes. United States? I mean, since the United States is, is where a lot of quote unquote innovation is occurring, maybe, maybe not necessarily, you know, moving forward, who knows, we could debate about that. But <laughs> but because, you know, it, it's the heart, you know, literally the, the center of the world in terms of the Internet, I guess, in some respects. Um, yes. What do you think about the education in, in the U.S.? Well, I mean, I got a little bit of exposure. I actually uh, only <laughs> studied for first grade uh, in the U.S. and then I went, I went to Turkey. So mm. I didn't really get to experience it much. Uh, but um, I can tell you that, um, you know, Throughout my life, I, I came and spent uh, summers uh, in the U.S. and I talked to my friends and so on. Um, and I, I used to go to summer camp in Miami. Uh, you know, my dad would send me to some summer camps that are local and so on. And uh, I got to interact with people there. And I would say, you know, my peers did not have as much um, uh, knowledge about math and science again and uh, about the world. So they were actually really focused on different things like you know, playing golf or, um, you know, sports, uh, playing tennis, things like that, but not so much about, like, let's say doing math or uh, knowing about the world capitals or things like that. So they didn't really memorize and learn things that, you know, everybody should learn about the world and so on. They just knew what they had to learn, you know, in that um, uh, age bracket. So I would say uh, that was surprising for me. And then I think my parents made it the right choice of sending me to school in Turkey. Mm. You know, that's what I would say. <laughs> <laughs> got it. Got it. Well, so, so you haven't hired a lot from the United States or have, have you had to hire? From, uh... No, we had, we started in the U S uh, mainly, and then we expanded to, to other places. So uh, I did uh, hire people, but most of the people I hired uh, either were from uh, top tier schools, uh, colleges, mm. uh, and uh, I, you know, and then mixed with people who had gone to Bay area colleges uh, mixed with uh, OPTs and CPTs uh, who are basically uh, graduating foreign students uh, in the United States, uh, you know, who want to live in the United States afterwards and who want to get an H-1B and after that a green card. Got it. 
Got it. All right. So I had a mixed bag of people. Got it. Okay. But but decent uh, collegiate experiences. So probably, you know. Not only, not only. I mean, some of them like are from, let's say, uh, local schools like Santa Clara University, San Jose State, uh, San Francisco uh, University, or University of San Francisco. Uh, I mean, Berkeley and Stanford don't count because those are top tier schools. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we had people from NYU, um, uh, USC, uh, University of Santa Barbara, uh, University of San Diego, and so on. The UC school system is also quite good, as you know. Yeah. But but that would count as again as a top tier, um, you know, school system. Okay. Well, well, tell me then. You know, you had mentioned this before. You know, the university doesn't make the person, right? Yeah. So, and and you just listed off a few schools that are not necessarily considered top tier, uh, and yes. yet they were in your locale. Do Do you feel like there was a correlation between the ones that did graduate from the top tier schools, and 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 how were they? you know, with your team, you know, uh, did you find them to be as productive or, or is it just a mixed bag of, you know, uh, it's hard to say like one, one, one generalization can, can, you know, go a long way. Right. I mean, what, what do you think? Um, I would say that like that the people from those top tier schools and so on were not as good. Even actually the uh, people we hired from Stanford, uh, uh, you know, I would say we didn't hire that many of them because they tend to be more expensive and have higher expectations uh, at the beginning of life um, but I would say the Stanford students did not perform as well in my company uh, compared to other people wow very, very Berkeley, Berkeley tends to perform a little bit better maybe because of the culture of my company which tends to be a little bit more humble mm. uh, maybe Stanford is a bit more you know entitled I would say I see I see fascinating well um now, I, I assume you, you hire developers quite a bit. I mean, that, that's a, a need. Not in the U.S. Not in Never the US. in the U.S. Well, mm-hmm. that is very interesting because that's a nice segue into then the question I have, which is uh, since there is a high need for developers in you know, the tech space, uh, yes. everything's blank tech, right? FinTech or, or you know, EduTech or whatever, EdTech. Um, EdTech. We're, we're needing developers. Now, you had just, just said you hire outside the United States. Why is that? And, and, and tell me a little bit. I, I'm going to almost make an assumption that you, you, you are hiring outside the United States because the talent is there. And, and therefore, maybe you trust them and, and you're able to, you know, basically build your company around them. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's exactly, you know, what it is. But to dive deeper, um, uh, if you look at uh, how the how Silicon Valley works, you have the VCs uh, who sit in, um, you know, uh, Sand Hill Road and, you know, or San Francisco. They recently <laughs> expanded to San Francisco, maybe about uh, in 2015, actually five, six years ago with Twitter and so on. Before that, they were always in Sand Hill Road. Uh, most of the VCs are white old men uh, or, you know, or over the age of like, let's say 40 and so on. Uh, there's rarely some Asians uh, mixed into the VC world, uh, Indians, um, uh, rarely, rarely, rarely any uh, black people, uh, rarely any woman and so on. So these people tend to be a little bit narrow-minded, I would say, mm-hmm. in how they fund also the companies in Silicon Valley. They tend to look for people who are similar to themselves, mm-hmm. you know, white and this and that. Uh, only recently, I would say in the past five, six years, They've expanded beyond that and they invested in immigrants and this and that and so on. So um, now if you look at uh, if you look at how they want the companies to be um, 
uh, created, they didn't really want to have uh, any untested territory be um, the technical uh, backhand because they're afraid that the IP uh, would uh, be created in those countries and would be locked in in those countries and there would be some legal issue bringing that IP back home and then uh, you would have a difficulty selling that company when it's time to sell the company. So there's all these different biases that kick in and basically they didn't want the companies to be outside the United States. Mm. Uh, things have changed in the past five years, I would say, uh, as uh, Silicon Valley saturated with uh, Twitter moving in, uh, Zynga, um, uh, and then you had Uber, you had all kinds of companies moving into San Francisco mid market area. Uh, and uh, the tech talent just dried up. You had Facebook uh, Google and uh, uh, other companies competing for the tech talent. And, you know, the salaries went up, the expense went up, the cost of living went up. San Francisco became a really crazy place. And the VCs realized that no startups would ever be able to get created in San Francisco anymore. Mm. So they started accepting more and more, you know, companies that were based out of, um, let's say, in other places like Ukraine, Russia, uh, India, this and that, as long as um, a control mechanism was in place. So, And they really looked at that control mechanism uh, before they funded the company and so on. So that's kind of what happened uh, as a change. Um, I would say, you know, the VC system and uh, the startups and so on diversified a little bit because of the cost of living here. I see. I see. And, 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 and you know, so that they're more open-minded, but can, can you say, uh, even though that's the case now, um, is the education, you know, like is a computer science program, let's say in Kiev, uh, you know, or, or perhaps any other Eastern Bloc country or city, um, is it comparable to the United States or is it better or is it worse? I mean, what do you think? Well, OK, let's, let's think about the CS classes I took at Stanford. I would say they teach you a lot of um, uh, practical um, uh, classes where you actually have to code something uh, that is relevant to today. So I took a lot of HCI, human computer interaction, uh, CS classes, um, industrial engineering and things like that. And uh, here, especially Stanford, I think is really well connected to the industry. So you end up having exposure to a lot of up-to-date stuff where as soon as you graduate, uh, let's say uh, three years ago, uh, you would have you know, jobs lined up uh, that are demanding for AI, machine learning, uh, statistics, uh, you know, trained people. Uh, whereas maybe 10 years ago, it was something else that was trendy and so on. And schools would prepare for those kind of things. So um, I think the schools abroad, um, let's say in Ukraine, Russia, uh, India, uh, China, uh, they are more focused, I think, on theory and then also on good math skills and then be able to convert those math skills into code. Um, whereas um, the, you know, the schools here kind of focus more on uh, practical training uh, while at school. Mm, interesting. Well, I have just a couple more questions for you. Sure. And then we're going to jump into a lightning round where we ask you five questions where we just ask for a quick <laughs> answer here. But uh, okay. two more questions are, uh, first, uh, so what were some of your best educational experiences uh, for maybe the education community out there to, to learn from, you know, what, what, what really uh, affected you growing up? Uh, I would say the diversity of education kind of matters. Um, so not being in the comfort zone. So I had to study uh, in Turkey mm -hmm. uh, at a French school. 
and I had French professors coming into class and teaching us everything in French, including biology, uh, you know, chemistry, um, uh, you know, math, all kinds of stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, while uh, the other professors would come in and, you know, they would come from, um, they would come to teach, let's say, different classes in Turkish, uh, Turkish history, uh, world history, citizenship, religion. You had to actually learn Arabic verses in that. Wow. Uh, and you have to recite them and so on, which is a bit crazy. Mm. Uh, and then they train you on, you know, all the different religions in the world and this and that. So I would say the diversity really helps because you get to learn um, different things from different people, different uh, backgrounds. So I think if the professors are diverse, that's good. And then uh, I said I continued with that, actually. You know, I learned at Stanford, I studied Russian um, for two years uh, as a side, you know, <laughs> side, <laughs> side project for myself. Wow. Wow. And, mm -hmm. and, and can you tell me um, in any of those or did you have uh, maybe outside of those, um, who, who were your best teachers or who, do you have any memorable experiences from actual instructors that made a big impact on you? Mm -hmm. uh, yes. I mean, my dad is a, um, <laughs> a well-educated person himself, uh, I would say. Uh, so you asked me if I come from a privileged background. Mm -hmm. I would say my family is really well-educated um, and uh, uh, not only uh, educated in terms of school, but also um, they uh, are curious people and they have uh, traveled the world and learned so much stuff. So I would not say that I compare uh, to a standard Turkish family or something like that. I see. I see. Uh, so that's that's different. My dad has um, uh, two bachelors, two masters and one uh, almost PhD. He's missing one class or something like that. Mm -hmm. So he was your best teacher out of all of them. He's a good teacher. But apart from that, uh, I had other teachers too. My uncle is an architect. Uh, and uh, he would teach me about design and history and things like that. Uh, my other stepdad um, worked at a Japanese company, so I learned about Japanese culture through him. Uh, he would come back from Asia with all kinds of stuff from Asia, food items, stories, gifts, all kinds of stuff. I love it. I love it, Donner. Uh, yeah, like I said, you don't give the standard answer. Some, you know, teacher that, you know, maybe in the third grade or maybe in the seventh grade that, you know, some other uh, people would probably, you know, spout off about. But uh, uh, I love it. You, you know, family can be, a, a, to be honest, uh, uh, I think it's, you know, you respect your family a lot. And that's why um, these these people had more of a didactic uh, Im impact on you. All right. Well, awesome. so awesome. We're going to jump right into these, uh, like I said, lightning round questions where I'm going to ask you five questions relatively quickly and if you, okay. you can just tell me the first word or maybe two that come to you know uh mind if you don't mind all right okay it's like a psychological test <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> ink plot ink plot test <laughs> so are you ready yes okay so first question who's your hero hmm. forrest gump mm, interesting all right number two Who's a great role model in society today? Oh, that's a difficult one. <laughs> We're supposed to say the president and so on, right? That's the typical answer. <laughs> uh, that's a difficult question, I think. I think maybe we don't have a role model. Not nobody. Interesting. I like that. Uh, the third one. So what could be a great motivator for someone just not feeling so great like in their efforts day to day you know maybe they're struggling as a student or entrepreneur what do you think can really motivate somebody who's struggling mm. distractions mm. distractions i like that too all right 
Fourth question. Um, mm -hmm. So your favorite meal or dish? Favorite meal or dish? Ooh, that's a difficult one. I actually like hamburgers, I think. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Because it really is a good value and it does the job and it tastes good. <laughs> so you are part American, basically. <laughs> yeah, of course, you know. <laughs> Yeah, that would be my preferred meal. If you gave me donut kebab versus a, a Wendy's hamburger, I would just go get a Wendy's hamburger. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, with my boys tonight. So my boys came back uh, from Korea today. And uh, yes. yeah, our, our meal tonight was Burger King. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Please, it tastes good. You know, it does the job. It did the job. It, exactly. Plus, yeah. plus, we had a coupon. So anyway. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> All right. So last question. Uh, you've literally traveled to millions of places. I, I mean, you probably one of the best passports uh, that I know of with my friends. Now, mm -hmm. I'm not going to ask you the best place, but I'm going to ask you actually, what was number two? What's your second favorite place? Um, you know, because what we're going to do is we're going to hold off on number one for the next time we have you on the show. Okay. So what was your number two? Okay, I think I need, I need to give context before I answer the question, or I'll answer the question and I'll give context please, later. Please, please. Uh, so I would say my second best place would be Boracay, Philippines. And? The first place would be uh, Coron, Philippines. Okay. <laughs> so we were, I'm cheating. We were, we were going to save that for the next show, but that's good. That's good. So tell me a little bit about why number two, and then, you know, feel free to expound on number one. Sure. Uh, Boracay is a really beautiful place. It's like heaven on earth. Uh, and uh, uh, the sand is all white because of some plankton um, that lives in the sea and it dies off and it hits the shore and it gets mixed with the sand and they actually collect it and make sure that it mixes well so the sand remains white. This is the top uh, tourist destination actually for to Korean tourists and all the uh, Asian tourists and so on, also some Americans. Uh, I would say this is a good place, but it's not the best. It's not natural enough. Mm. So... I, I like my number one, which would be, which would be uh, Koron, uh, Philippines. It's on, um, there's a group of islands called the Palawan Islands. Uh, it, this is actually really close to the disputed territory with China on the South uh, China Sea. Uh, and this is like the last uh, frontier for uh, Philippines uh, in many different ways. Uh, it's a really different archipelago, uh, different from the other ones uh, that Philippines is based in. Uh, and um, it has beautiful uh, uh, submarine life. Uh, you basically dive, you see different worlds in there. I took my parents there because it's such a beautiful place. And they were so surprised about the variety of different colors that are available under the sea. Wow. Wow. And then you come out of the sea and it's blue. And then you have the mountains. And then you go into the mountains, you climb, you find lakes. Inside the lakes, you have... Um, Uh, you know, uh, barracuda or jellyfish or some other stuff. And then you also have tribal people. Uh, it's called the Tagbanoa uh, tribe. They actually used to not wear any clothes before. So it's quite uh, primitive, yet at the same time, very special. And they eat worms. Um, it's called tamalok. I, for I forgot the name, but it's like a, uh, it tastes like breed. It's not anything to be scared of. Oh. Uh, wow. So... I didn't expect you to be a, a, a tour uh, advisor here today, <laughs> but, but that was wonderful. Uh, thank you so much, Honor. Uh, and and I, I could talk to you forever, uh, and I'm so glad that you had some time for us here today to join us on the show. 
Um, you, you really uh, expounded and elucidated so many great thoughts about the topic of education, but also it's, it's great. I mean, even though we've been friends for a long time, I mean, it, learning more of how you think uh, just makes me feel you're seriously one of the most honorable and, and just one of the best guys doing, you know, kind of crazy things and, and, you know, obviously getting a lot of that <laughs> I've had the chance to meet. So thank you so much for joining Thanks. us here on the show. It, it was great. It was great also. Uh, Asking the different questions, it's really fun uh, to think about what you have in your brain from a different angle. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Pull the data out and then see what it makes. And I think this was a great podcast. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Honor. Um, we look forward uh, for when you know you hit your first billion, if you haven't hit that already, uh, <laughs> um, and you know to have you back. And, and and we could, like I said, we could probably talk about education for a while and learn more about you. Sounds good. Sounds good. Right. Nice talking. Right. Nice talking to you too today. All right. Thanks, Honor. Bye bye. Ciao, ciao. All right. Bye bye. Thanks for joining us here on Educate. We sincerely appreciate you spending some time and listening to our show. Hopefully you enjoy and we would always appreciate a little review here at the bottom. And on top of that, if you don't mind, subscribe and hope uh, to have you listen to more great episodes we want to share with you examining the focus of education. Thanks again. Look forward to seeing you back here on the show. <laughs>